Welcome to Decrypt, Asia's first blockchain and cryptocurrency podcast. I'm your host, Tushar. Each week, we take a deep dive into the Asian blockchain scene with investors, technologists, and industry insiders. Go to decrypt.asia to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram to join in the discussions. Hi, guys. Today, I have perhaps the most interesting and most experienced guest in the blockchain space that we've had in the short history of this show. Our guest for today's show is Meher Roy. Meher has been active in this ecosystem since about 2013. He's a fellow podcaster and host of Epicenter, one of the most well-respected blockchain podcasts in the industry with guests such as Vitalik Buterin, Adam Back, Gavin Andreessen, Ralph Merkel, regularly featuring on his show. He has also recently started a new company called Chorus One, where his company is building validator nodes for proof-of-stake blockchain networks such as Cosmos. Meher is a graduate of the Indian Institute of Technology, or IIT, and worked in the pharmaceutical and healthcare industry prior to making a switch to the blockchain world. A quick note here before I begin. I ended up talking to Meher for close to two hours. As a result, I had to split this episode into two parts. In the first part, we'll talk more about the company he's building. And in the second part, we'll talk about his investment philosophies and the mental models he uses while making investment decisions. Welcome to the show, Meher. Thank you. Thank you, Tushar. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for all the support and the advice that you've given me during my podcasting as well as blockchain journey. It's been great to bounce ideas off of you and learn from your experiences. I'm... I'm happy you are doing a podcast in the crypto space and I'm personally happy to see podcasts come out of India and Asia in general. Yeah. When, I, when, I, start, when I started out in, in the industry, there, there, weren't, there wasn't any, weren't any people doing this out of India. I'm really happy that way. Yeah. Well, I'm based out of Singapore now. So, uh, there's, there's not too much activity going on in the blockchain space in India compared to Singapore. I mean, Singapore is, I think, uh, operating at a different level at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, every cafe, restaurant you go to and people are talking about crypto. Uh, but I mean, that's, that's a separate point. Um, so I want to start off with uh, an observation that I made recently. I noticed that you went off Twitter where a lot of crypto talk happens. Is there any particular reason for it? Yeah, I think there are there are there are a few reasons for it. Uh, the main one being so first of all, it's an experiment. I wanted to see what life feels like without social media, so I also deleted my Facebook profile. I went off Twitter, and the final thing that remains is LinkedIn, which I will also get rid of. So it's an experiment to see what life is like without social media. It. It, it does have its advantages. The chief one being that I, I listen to my wife much more without, when there's no social media. She's not complaining. <laughs> yeah. So when, like, for example, when we're having dinner, no Twitter, uh, I, I actually focus on her and uh, she likes this better. But on the professional side, uh, I sort of observe two things about Twitter. So the first is that Especially like when you look look at crypto Twitter, crypto Twitter has a way of 
generating a lot of small fleeting emotions in one's mind right now for example like what was what's what's an example of a small fleeting emotion uh let's say you hold asset x some some relatively famous person says something against asset x right and you read that message and you read those conversations even if you are if you have even if you have really good self control you'll have an emotional reaction to that conversation you'll think about it for the next i don't know 6 hours 7 hours and i felt uh, these were distractions i i just didn't need like these surges of emotion in one one direction and then in the other direction um that was one thing i i wanted less less emotion in 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 my life that that twitter brought about and uh, and the second and the other thing professionally i wanted to try out was to test what it does for productivity and i and i feel going off twitter raises my productivity a lot uh, so these days i'm building a company and uh, and it's best for the company if i like stay away from conferences stay away from social media and just 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 do the actual work of building the company just sort of these are the reasons why i i went off uh, of twitter to avoid emotional surges to be more productive and then actually uh, the benefit i didn't realize but does exist is you know to pay more attention to family and wife Uh, yeah uh, but uh, you know don't you think in general there's a trade off between productivity and building your personal brand even for your company even professionally uh, don't you think that brand comes in handy in terms of when you're looking to either hire people or you know get on a new client so to say i mean perhaps that's not applicable in in the business that you're building but don't you think that i mean there's obviously a trade off right in terms of building that brand versus increasing your productivity yeah from a company perspective if if i look as a company now i am on the technology side in the company right the company needs to build a brand and of course there'll be like social media manager there'll be like marketing officer whose main job it is will be to maintain a good twitter profile so i don't think the company suffers from from me not being on twitter right i i'm not a journalist i am somebody building technology and it's probably better for the company i do that well the second scenario is more interesting the that is about personal brand so i i feel i feel my most high quality like what is personal brand right so personal brand might be the network of people that know you and the network of people that uh, that would value your insight if you were to produce any right so it's like the network of people who that would know me and then if some day i have an insight let's say a governance insight on on some blockchain network and i have to write an article uh the number and the quantity and quality of people that would read my article and respond to it and change uh, some of their approach to a network in a particular way because of my article so i think that is really a brand now my personal perception is that if i look at my personal brand i think most of it is made 
through epicenter like 80% of it is made through epicenter twitter might play a very small role in it so i i have a feeling that if i if i just restrict twitter and i do epicenter really well it doesn't it doesn't harm my brand in in any way second thing is i also don't want to worry about personal brands like this is the age where everyone starts to has become a personal brand and everyone worries about their brand i i don't want to be part of this system at some level like it's it's okay to not have a brand yeah it's yeah, okay yeah i mean it's more important to produce great work in whatever we are doing podcasting building technology just produce great work and the brand usually takes care of itself spending 2 hours tweeting to build a personal brand i i think is is suboptimal yeah yeah i think i i tend to disagree a little bit but i think i'll re- let the matter rest there we got a little carried away but uh, you know so just to tell the listeners about your background could you tell us about when and how you got involved in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space and how that journey's been like for you so i i came across bitcoin uh, when the economist published an article in 2011 for me it was it was clear like it was interest at first sight i, I read the economist article and and i felt this technology was interesting i dug into it in early 2012 2012 was when my first attempts to purchase bitcoin happened i didn't succeed at first actually because like it was really hard to uh, buy and store bitcoin in those days and then came a phase where i forgot about it other things in life took over my interest was rekindled in like 2013 when there were like two bubbles so march 2013 was one bubble and november 2013 was a second bubble so the first bubble took bitcoin from 3 dollars to 100 and the second took it from 100 to 1000 and since i already had an interest in it my interest was like so i i tend to read a lot of stuff for example this day i'm right now i'm studying zoology so my my interest in bitcoin was more like that it was a hobby but then when these bubbles happened at the end of 2013 i decided i want to make a career out of this which was quite a hard decision to make because um, my skill sets did not suit this field at all and but i ended up doing it and in 2014 since 2014 and onwards i have uh, progressively invested systematically invested more time of my life into this space and by now i have you know i'm a show host at epicenter i have uh, i'm a co-founder at chorus one which is my company and i i dedicate like 100% of my energy in the crypto space and so what was it about bitcoin that was you know appealing to you because i think you know back in 2012 2013 even 2014 it was not the i mean from an investor's point of view and i know from your other interviews as well as our conversations that you were always looking to invest and and that was more so in in the public equity and debt markets but so what what exactly was it about bitcoin that you thought was appealing uh, because most people who are looking to invest in the public markets would have been extremely uncomfortable investing in bitcoin was there anything in particular that made you believe in it yeah so 
I'll start with like prefacing that I believed in something when I invested in Bitcoin at first. I think that thesis is wrong now. The thesis that actually made me invest in Bitcoin, but I'll go through it anyway because a lot of people around the world are still investing as per that thesis. So like my, one of the central frameworks that I use is um, I always think a lot about the power of compound interest. Like we, we've all studied that formula in, in school, right? Like P equals P naught one plus X raised to N where X is the interest rate N is the number of years. P naught is what you started with and P is what you get at the end of that, that period. Yep. But it's a magically powerful formula. It is a magically powerful formula because compound interest is actually, you can exp express compound interest as actually an exponential curve. What starts to happen usually is that when you extend the compound interest formula over long periods of time, it produces fantastical uh, returns. So let's take an example. So something that grows at 20% a year is, so if you think of something that goes at, grows at 20% a year, uh, that thing is going to double in around three years, a little bit more than three years, but let's assume three years, like maybe three and a half. So something that goes at 20% will go double in three and a half years, which means it will be four times in seven years, and it will be eight times in 10 and a half. And I'm pretty sure if you extend this over a hundred years, X will become, I don't know, a million X or something like that, right? It'll be a, it'll be a crazy amount. And when you look back at history, you do realize that with fiat money, compound interest subtly works against you, right? So compound interest is this ferocious, pro ferocious tool and you want compound interest to work for you, right? Like when you have money, if I have, let's say a hundred rupees, I want it to grow compounded 20% a year, because if I can grow, 100 rupees at 20, 20% a year, uh, it, will, it will become a massive quantity by the time it's given off to my children, right? It will be, I don't know, it will be like probably millions or billions of rupees if, it, if I can manage to grow it at 20%. But if you, if you look at fiat money, fiat money has the property of inflation and inflation is compound interest working against you. Right. So if you have a hundred rupees uh, next year, the purchasing power of that hundred rupees falls down by 10%. And the year after that, 10% again, and the year after that, 10% again. And in 50 years, inflation is compound interest working against you. That the thing that you fundamentally have to avoid in life. <laughs> um, so you see these examples, right? Like so, so, so like last last summer or last winter, I went to Mysore, and I went to the uh, Royal Palace of Mysore. So this is like this amazing building, right? Like huge, one of the largest palaces in India. Huge grounds, huge building. The interesting thing is that palace was made in 1910 for around 21 lakhs in Indian rupees. The whole palace for 21 lakhs. Today, today we don't get a small one-bedroom flat for uh, for that amount. So 
for a Western audience, twenty-one lakh rupees is today's thirty thousand dollars. But the whole palace was built for thirty thousand dollars, including the land, including all the furnishing. And why is that so? That is because like this is because inflation is compound interest working against you. You are losing wealth by ten percent a year, but then every you are losing by ten percent every year. So it gets compounded against you, and it produces uh, totally weird results. Now, some people say that the island of New York was bought for Manhattan was bought for one dollar a like four hundred years ago. That's a myth. This story is a myth, but I think there is some truth to it, right? So one dollar four hundred years ago is equivalent to billions of dollars today. Now, what I felt interesting about Bitcoin was, uh, Bitcoin was the first currency that could be totally opposite. Instead of instead, so it's a it's normal currency is compound interest works against you. Bitcoin was the first currency I felt in which compound interest was working for me rather than against me. In other words, it was de- deflationary. So with Bitcoin, because because the units were scarce. But the number of people using this this system keeps growing every year. Uh, the value of the coin increases. So something where supply is scarce, but the demand keeps growing because the users the user base grows at twenty percent a year. So uh, what happens when you have finite supply meeting a growing demand? Well, price has to rise. What does the rise in price mean? That if you think of Bitcoin as a currency, everything is deflationary. So instead of prices falling, uh, prices going up, prices are going down. And wouldn't that be something you want out of your money? You want your money to be such that it would make compound interest, the engine of compound interest, work for you. And that was the simple logic with which my initial investments in Bitcoin were made. And so you you say that this hypothesis that you used to make the investment doesn't hold anymore. Uh, how do you think? It's changed since you made that investment. In the early days of cryptocurrency, uh, it was really easy to um, to pick the coin. There was just Bitcoin, and until 2015, um, I didn't have any altcoins. I, I bought the first altcoin, which was Ether, in 2015. And at that time, it was like safe to say that it would be Bitcoin that would make compound interest work. Work for you because that was the only thing that you knew that if if other people were to enter cryptocurrency, they would end up buying Bitcoin and they would raise demand for Bitcoin specifically. It was very easy. Nowadays, I'm not that sure anymore. So especially this year, I feel there's so many great technological ideas and so many potentially great currency systems that that are in the works. That I wonder if, if in like five years, the next person entering the crypto space will they buy Bitcoin or will they buy other things? Like, will a newbie entrant into the space still keep buying Bitcoin or would they buy other things? I mean, my uh, my estimate is there's like 80% chance that the the focal point, the shelling point, will shift away from Bitcoin into other things. And so, like this thesis, while while it was correct from a 2012 perspective, 2013 perspective, needs to be modified to fit a 2018 perspective. And I'm just curious: does that reflect 
in the in in that in the investments that you make or how your portfolio looks like at the moment as well it certainly does so i i own like very small amounts of bitcoin now it might be less than 5% of my portfolio certainly okay um, okay um so i i plan to dig a lot more into the investment side in the later part of the interview but before that i want to focus more on the company that you're trying to build currently yeah so your i mean your company is called chorus one uh, could you could you tell us uh, you know you've existed for about 5 months now you're building uh, a validator node for the cosmos project could you tell us a little bit more about what you're trying to do with chorus one yeah so um, so of course like one of the big themes in this space now is uh, the so called rise of proof of stake lots of projects are switching to or starting off as proof of stake projects and proof of work has miners proof of stake has validators and technologically miners and validators are very different so in mining the focus is on making hash calculations in bitcoin you want to compute the most number of sha256 hashes per second that you can but validation is quite different in validation the the basically the mining equipment is the coin itself so if you want to become a validator for the cosmos network you need to have the internal uh, cryptocurrency of cosmos which is atoms and the number of atoms you have uh, determines your voting power or mining power and so the way it works is if i have a thousand atoms i can stake or lock these thousand atoms and then i get like thousand votes in the creation of every block and if tushar on the other side of the world has 10000 atoms in locks 10000 atoms he gets 10000 votes in the creation of every block and every the creation of every block the finalization of every block can be seen as this democratic voting process where all the validators that have uh, locked atoms get to vote and if 66% agree that a particular block should be added to the blockchain it is it is considered final or it is added to the blockchain so right now uh, in the very short term we are focused on building one of these validator nodes for the cosmos network the other piece that is very interesting to the validator side is i think validation is the beginning of fixed income in the cryptocurrency market so uh, so let's say let's say you have a thousand atoms and you lock them and you became a validator now if you lock if you produce blocks for a year or take part in the voting process for a year the network will reward you with with some interest so for cosmos the canonical interest might be around 10% so if you lock 1000 atoms become a validator validate for a year you will get 10% interest so the 1000 becomes uh, 1100 uh, sorry so, uh, quick quick query there so is it like that's the total return right 10% on the total 10%. total number of atoms that are there that's the total reward that will be given to the entire network yeah so so but if if you lock x atoms and you validate yourself then after a year it will become 1.1x yeah because you get that point 1 in, in in interest so all of the validators uh, get this property now if you think about it like this is actually a fixed income security 
right? Like in the traditional financial markets, I go and buy a bond and the bond might give 5%, like no artist corporate bond might give 5%. And then if I reinvest that 5% I receive into the corporate bond itself, that cash flow pattern is the same as the validator cash flow pattern. It is exactly the same. And so the, I think like we think this is the beginning of a fixed income security in the cryptocurrency industry. So we are building a validator. And of course, like the product is, um, if you're a user that has atoms, but that does not want to validate because there are reasons why valid, validating yourself is quite painful uh, and it's quite risky and it's quite hard to do. If you don't want to validate yourself, you can sort of delegate your atoms to us. As a first approximation, you can think of it as loaning your atoms to us. And then we'll give you, instead of 10%, we'll, we might give you eight or 9% in interest. We are doing validation, which is the process of generating blocks for a proof of stake network. But we also see ourselves as creating the first fixed income types of plays in the blockchain industry. So you, you've mentioned fixed income a few times. Have you, I, I think, you know, because of the nature of this small space within the broader ecosystem that you're operating in, um, I think it becomes a little bit easier to work out the economics of your business as well. I know that you've, uh, you've been working closely with the Cosmos team as well to build out this infrastructure. Uh, there would be multiple factors and variables in play, but what percent do you have an idea of what percentage of the total tokens would you aim to be staked with with you and and what are the approximate returns that you would be looking at i mean you mentioned 8 9% returns out of the 10 is going to be passed on to the delegator is that is are those the numbers that you're running with no actually like these are all indicative numbers um, right now this we haven't d- decided on what we'll pass on to the delegator and what we keep ourselves for the efforts of uh, of validating. These are indicative numbers. They might turn out to be close to reality, I guess, but but they can change. Part of the reason why it's, it's hard for us to offer an exact number is the network's still not live. We, we don't know uh, what the live network looks like, what the assumptions are going to be. Uh, the interest rate might turn out not to be 10%, but 7%. This could very well happen. So until the network goes live and our product goes live, it's a bit premature to make make decisions. Right? Like, so we are building the product, but uh, how to price that product depends on what the market looks like. And it's, it's still a few months out. In terms of like how, how many tokens in the Cosmos network we expect to validate, I don't know. Um, we certainly wouldn't want to go greater than 15% of the network. That's, that's, that's the upper bound for sure. But whether we get 2% of the supply, 5% or 10% of the supply, uh, it depends on how well the market responds to a product, how well they feel the user experiences, how trusted a brand we are able to become and things like that. With the validation market, it is possible to estimate the overall size of the validation market pretty decently, but it is very hard for us to estimate what fraction of this market we will manage to capture because it's such an early market that we, we don't know what shall be the basis of competition in this market yet. 
but do you think it's going to follow something like a power distribution curve where few of the validators might have most of the tokens in the network delegated to them and they emerge as leaders this is a debate i uh, my co-founder and i keep having again and again so the question it's it's a very very good question uh, and i don't know the answer to it so the, the question is like okay so there's going to be let's say 10 proof of stake networks in 2020 right and assume these 10 proof of stake networks have a total market cap of let's say 500 billion it's a high number but so 500 billion and out of that 500 billion like 300 billion is being actively staked right so when this that is that 300 billion is being actively staked and on average it's earning like 10 percent and then the validators are making one percent right so like when uh, let's say like when when tushar you stake a thousand atoms uh, we make 10 atoms out of your your stake at the end of the year then if 300 billion is being staked then the whole validation market the revenues of the whole validation market are are three billion dollars right because the validators take away one percent of it so the overall market is huge it's potentially quite quite large but your question is different your question is that if i make a, a bar chart where i'm where each validator is each validator is a bar and the height of the bar is um, the total amount of assets and dollars that they are that they are responsible for and i plot all of the validators in the market like that so maybe there'll be a thousand validators 2000 validators what does that look like does it does it look like a power locker where like where like some of the validators have very high bars and the others have lower progressively lower and lower bars and beyond validator 30 uh, the the next 900 validators have very tiny bars does it look like that or does it look like there's a thousand validators total there are bars but let's say i don't know 500 of them are roughly equal in size is it like that or is it the case where some validator bars are very high and others are are quite low so the question is whether it's like a power law distribution or it is lots of winners distribution. That is that is the question. Well, if you think in terms of uh, the differentiators between different validators, um, I, from my understanding and my thought process, it would essentially be the brand that you built. So how secure are you to stake yeah. tokens with? And the second would be the pricing, right? Are these the two metrics that would differentiate the winners from um, the, within this space. I, yeah, I think I think these are the two main, at least these are the two publicly visible metrics. Uh, personally, I think there are there are a few more, but I I cannot go into those in in this podcast in a public podcast. But I but I think like to start off with, um, yeah, brand and the commission rate is, is is are going to be the determinants. I think the market will settle at at some at some level of commission rates. I think all markets do, right? Um, I mean, like if you look at the breakfast cereal market, you go to a, you go to a high, supermart, hypermart, like all the breakfast cereals are uh, priced in, this, that, in the same range. And I think it will be similar for the validation market. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking more along the lines of the practice for hedge funds and other funds, which is the kind of, the industry has kind of agreed on the whole 220 fees mechanism. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So an, an industry like the hedge fund has the shelling point, which is 220. 
and i think the validation market will also have a shelling point right yeah. uh, i think i think it's inevitable and i mean like you can price a little bit higher than the shelling point if you have a good brand you can price a little bit lower than the shelling point and try to increase the amount of assets you have those experiments you can do but i think the market will congregate around some standard what would become important is the brand right so i mean like what is ultimately the brand the uh, i think i think brands are a reflection of the limited processing capacity of humans individually and even as groups so if you think of yourself as like a computer uh, your processing power is limited right the number of information items you can hold the things you can evaluate is is limited which is why uh, and many times you don't want to do evaluations so a brand is a way of making humans avoid evaluations right like so if i'm let's say if i'm the, if i'm in the cereals market well kellogs is a brand i could if if i were if i had infinite processing capacity i would go and try every cereal in the market figure out which one is the best in quality and then eat only that but that that has a search cost right if i wanted to evaluate every cereal in the market i need to spend probably 6 months doing it uh and that then that that imposes a cost on me so one way to short circuit that cost is to say oh kellogs is this brand i have heard this name 10 times and while they may not be the best it is likely that if i if i buy kellogs they will be at least 80% the quality of the best that i could find myself so i save 6 months of search cost by just going for the name so because my processing is limited i i go for a brand and this is true everywhere right so like if you if you if you're buying a piece of chocolate you going for cadbury because well trying out all the chocolates in the world is going to take 5 years figuring out the perfect one but if you go for cadbury you are pretty sure that oh probably it's cadbury is 80% as good as the best in the market in in all markets brand takes a role and uh, and it, i think it will be the same in the validation market when when you are delegating money to a validator you are actually trusting the validator to run operations well right and if they don't run operations well you as a delegator can lose a lot of money so if you stake 1000 atoms and your validator produces an invalid block then you could lose 500 atoms so ideally as a as a user if i had infinite computation computing power and time i would go and check out the infrastructures of each validator in the world and i would figure out which one has the best mix of operational security and low commission rate and then i would make that decision but it would probably take a year because if you have a thousand validators if you if you are super efficient at evaluating the operational security of these thousand validators then uh, and you could do like three a day it would still take you a year right and then after a year you would make your decision but humans have limited processing capacity they have only 2 hours to spend on this decision like a typical user so the typical user is going to short circuit that process by saying oh chorus 1 is a brand they'll they're probably 80% as good as the best option that exists and i have only 2 hours to spend on this decision so let me just delegate to chorus 1 that's going to happen here which is why brand is going to be important in this market and then the other like other scarcity that exists is for a brand generally it's like somebody else refers you to it right like your friend says oh i delegated with chorus 1 
so if you look at like human society as a whole in in all markets um ultimately things congregate around 5 10 15 20 30 brands uh in any brand dominated market so you can have examples of market where it congregates around 2 or 3 you can have examples where it congregates around 50 or 60 if you look at the banking international banking market you will see that probably there are 50 big brands right if you count all the hsbcs and barclays there's the 50 big brands if you look at the uh, cold drinks market there are only two no not two but like carbonated drinks market there are like pepsi and coca cola so you have markets that are there are two there are markets where there are 150 so what is the validation market going to be like it's an unanswered question but it could be anywhere in between to answer it very briefly what is your view is your view that it's going to be highly fragmented or is your view that you know we're going to sort of uh, converge towards a few big brands and then everyone else kind of gets a very very small piece of the pie i i i don't know so okay okay from a, from a decentralization perspective yeah it is certainly nice if the market dynamics of this market were if they were to converge around say 50 brands rather than five because if they converge around five then all proof of stake networks are going to be end up pretty centralized if you converge around 50 now that's a good distribution right like 50 parties for for the main networks that's quite a good distribution i think the proof of stake network designers will design their networks in a way that it goes towards 50 rather than five and i think many of their design choices are going to influence whether it's five or 50 and ultimately uh, society will realize which design choices lead to 50 rather than 5 and those are the ones that will become popular so it's 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 not the case that the market exists in isolation right like market exists let's say somebody designs a proof of stake network the market acts on it and then it oh it realizes that oh for this design it congregates into five brands then the next generation of proof of stake designers will be like oh that design is centralizing so let me design something in which the effect of brand is even lower and so ultimately i think we are going to see this process of iteration where uh, proof of stake designers will improve over time and they will try to hit a design where uh, where there's 50 and that is where the market will probably stabilize that that would be my guess so th- there are multiple market forces in play but uh, the people designing these networks are still quite small in number so do you think uh, and i mean this is something i think about so do you think there is centralization kind of built into the system inherently it's it's kind of like how you know i mean it to kind of take a, a page from history uh, i mean for the longest time and this is something that the whole cypherpunk movement stood for as well you know for the longest time it was financial institutions and governments or all these establishments that kind of dictated terms and there's kind of like a power shift from these establishments to um you can call it silicon valley or technologists in general distributed around the world but do you think that there is still this element of centralization that is prevalent it's just that there is a move from a centralization within one faction to to a different faction of society i i actually think there is a computational logic to centralization in society so just like there's a computational logic for brands right like that's what i said right the brands are mechanisms we use in order to save our limited computational power ultimately 
I think a lot of the centralization we see in society, uh, centralization of resources or capabilities, is actually also society's way of saving on its computational power. If you think about it, like, like if you think of any product in 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 a, in the in the in the modern society, there is significant design complexity behind any product, like be it like cornflakes, be it chewing gum, be it shampoo, being it be it validation. Like if you actually peek behind the curtain and see how this thing is designed, highly complex, almost always. And the number of people with the human capital and the skills to, to design any product in any space is quite limited. Like the number of people that can design a great shampoo in the world, probably not more than 5,000. I, I don't think it's more than 5,000. And so why does society do it? Like, like this is a form of like specialization, right? So we 5,000 specialize in designing shampoos so that you 5,000 as a different group can specialize in designing perfumes. And when like parts of society specialize in this way, um, society as a whole can produce more, more good things. So we are like, we create these knowledge silos. Society automatically creates these knowledge silos in order that we might use the whole computation power of society more efficiently and build more good things for all of society. But, but like when you restrict, when, when the restriction of 5,000 people knowing to design a good shampoo happens and five, only 5,000 people know how to supply this shampoo all over the world, the company that controls 2,000 good designers and 2,000 good supply chain experts of shampoo is going to have an, a massive advantage over the company that has only 10 designers and 10 experts. So if you think of it, like what is centralization? I think centralization, one of the reasons of centralization is the human tendency of specialization of labor. Specialization of labor automatically leads to few people having expertise in, in topics. And then the companies that control, like that employ these few people and make a combination out of it have an advantage over those that don't. And this is what ultimately leads to some form of centralization. That is shampoo making business is pretty centralized. You know, it's six or seven, not more. I think, I think this is a pattern beyond crypto, beyond Silicon Valley, Wall Street. Like these are like Silicon Valley, Wall Street are just manifestations of this pattern, but this pattern exists on a level which is deeper. I think it will be similar ultimately for, for proof of stake and validation, right? Like the number of experts that can design secure validators. Well, I mean, does society need 100,000 experts to do this? No. Society probably needs 5,000 experts in this, in this topic, and that's enough. Ultimately, there is a limit to how much we can decentralize, even validation. Because beyond the point, like what is the most decentralized system? The most decentralized system is that 10 million people know how to build a validator, right? Like 10 million people have the skill sets of building a validator. But that's like on a societal scale, that's very inefficient. Like you could have used these 10 million people to specialize in other things and produce more for society if they specialize in other things. So perfect decentralization is, is highly inefficient, right? Probably the societal optimal is to have these like, let's say 10,000 people specialize in validation. And then these 10,000 people 
people to be controlled in 50 different companies and then these 50 different companies give decentralization and and that's enough distribution of power uh, i think i think that's the best outcome we can have if you want to decentralize more you will create other perverse outcomes in society and i think like power is shifting away from wall street to silicon valley it it is just it is just a result of that the specializations that matter are changing uh, so now like for example like ai and big data is a new specialization and the people that are specialized in ai and big data are now in silicon valley so which is why there is a shift from wall street to to silicon valley i don't know if i answered your question i i think you answered that beautifully i mean i think that's a great way to think i've actually never personally thought from that perspective i've never come across someone who's answered this question the way you did and so i think you know that was uh, quite amazing i mean at least for me thank you thank you yeah um, I'd be glad to have comments on on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think I need to. I need uh, a while to digest it. Um, but I think uh, I I know exactly where you're coming from. And again, I like I mentioned. You know, I've never thought from this perspective before. Again, you know, I know that we've tried to specialize, tried to build specialized skills for thousands of years now, as as a species in general. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, the, just the way you articulated the whole answer was 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 quite good. All right, guys, I'll stop this week's interview right here to not make it too long. I will be releasing the second part of my conversation with Meher, the juicier part about investing next week. Thanks for listening, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram, and subscribe to our newsletter on decrypt.asia. This is your host, Tashar. Thank you for listening.